Season 10 of the Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. In 2003, there were a few things that were totally inescapable. Trucker hats and studded belts were everywhere. People were nuts for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. And Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix became the best-selling book of the year. But also huge and equally inescapable was the second-highest-grossing book of the year, Dan Brown's smash hit, The Da Vinci Code. I remember that I, a graduate student in art history at the time, grabbed my copy at a local bookstore and, sorry not sorry, spent the entire weekend devouring it, really only taking a break here and there to make myself some snacks before diving back headlong into its narrative. By now, you've probably heard the story. Brown's symbologist, Robert Langdon, and his cryptologist colleague, Sophie Neveu, struggled to solve a murder couched in symbols that translated to spell out incredible consequences for world religion and thus for the world at large. And the bombshell claims that this fictional book made, and I stress fictional, were many. And two-decade-long spoiler alert, by the way. Dan Brown says that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, and after his death, she fled to what would become France and bore him a daughter whose descendants founded the Merovingian line of French kings. This secret had been kept through the centuries, first by the Knights Templar, and then after their destruction by the Priory of Sion, a secretive group led over the years by many great men, including, as the title so clearly states, Leonardo da Vinci. Most famously, Dan Brown wrote that Leonardo had revealed these and many more secrets in his paintings. And that is the Da Vinci Code. It's an irresistible premise, and it was catnip even for an art historian like me who should have known better and hopefully did know better. But ever since its publication, many have wondered, is there really a Da Vinci Code? And if so, what painting might truly contain illusions most clearly? to these secrets. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In this season, season 10, we are digging deep on some great art historical facts and fictions. In this episode, we're ending the season with a big question. Does Leonardo's epic fresco, The Last Supper, truly reveal a Da Vinci Code? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. We began the season with an episode on Leonardo da Vinci, so it only felt appropriate to end the season with an episode on Leonardo. He bookends our season because his life, and most of all, his works of art, have been the ones around which so many of the greatest fictions in art history have developed in the last few decades. And though I can't place all the blame on Dan Brown, there is truly a corollary between interest in Leonardo's secrets or Leonardo's hidden agenda or alternative meanings behind his works of art and the Da Vinci Code. 
a lot of this, as we've learned from previous case studies this season, not only in our previous episode about Leonardo and the Mona Lisa, but I'm also especially thinking about the episode on Johannes Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring. A lot of myths and legends that have sprouted around these works is due to the fact that there are still missing pieces in the stories behind them. We fill in the gaps with these occasionally incredible and unbelievable stories because, well, we don't have much preventing us from doing so. But not having much is not having nothing. And in the case of Leonardo's epic commission for The Last Supper, we do have at least something to go on. In 1482, Leonardo da Vinci, at 30 years old, was sent alongside a Florentine emissary to meet with Lodovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan. Leonardo, it seems, was looking for a change of scenery and was enthusiastic about leaving Florence for a little while, where he had been working on several unfinished commissions, including the Adoration of the Magi, now in the Uffizi Gallery. And just as enthusiastically, one of his patrons, the great Lorenzo de' Medici of Florence's ruling family, sought to recommend Leonardo for a kind of artistic exchange, sharing the wealth, it seems, with one of his allies. And Leonardo was into this. In fact, he wrote an introductory letter for himself where he spoke not only of his artistic talents, but also of the many other interests he had as well, including his usefulness as a hydraulic engineer and, get this, as a pageantry designer. Eventually, he would go on to work for the Dougal household, designing said pageants and entertainments. But though his qualifications and achievements were certainly impressive, he was not immediately granted many commissions. So Leonardo had some time to take on other jobs for other patrons, including Milan's Confraternity of the Immaculate Conception. The confraternity, by the way, commissioned an altarpiece from Leonardo that would eventually become both versions of his famed Madonna of the Rocks, one of which is in Paris and the other is in London today. When Leonardo was finally commissioned to produce a work of art by the Sforza court, they went big. And they asked Leonardo to go big too. Now, I don't want to get into too much depth on this because I really definitely want to cover it on a future episode of this show. But in short, Leonardo was asked to design a huge equestrian monument to commemorate the founder of the Sforza line, a man named Francesco Sforza. This horse was to be a giant, 26 feet high, or the equivalent of a two-and-a-half-story building. But as Leonardo was wont to do, he bit off way more than he could chew and never succeeded in bringing his creation to fruition outside of a scale model. But after the Sforza dynasty was toppled in 1499, the money for such an incredible giant work of art toppled out of sight too. Not that Leonardo was unable to create anything under the Duke's purview during that time in the Sforza household. In 1494, before the Sforza collapse, Lodovico Sforza began commissions to beautify the monastery of Santa Maria delle Grazie, a Dominican church in Milan, which he intended to choose as his final resting place, as well as those of his descendants. Lodovico wasn't actually buried there after all, but I guess that's kind of beside the point today. To Lodovico's eyes, Santa Maria delle Grazie needed a little bit of love and any sprucing up could only help to glorify Lodovico and his family for centuries. Pretty burial place, 
much-respected family, the line of thinking goes. So he asked Leonardo to help him out with a fairly traditional ask. Please, he said, please paint a scene of the Last Supper in the refectory, the monastery's dining area. Coming up next, we've finally got Leonardo's Last Supper in our sights. So come on back right after these messages from today's sponsors. And thank you for listening. Hunting down answers to your questions can be so rewarding. But when it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend to find great candidates with the right skills. That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you are guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process, so you can find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, included assessments, and virtual interviews. With Indeed Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your requirements. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy and that everything can be done right there on Indeed, from hiring and testing to those all-so-necessary virtual interviews. There's no need to close out and set invites from Google Meet or Zoom. There's no need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interviews work from your browser and it's headache-free. No downloads, plugins, or purchases. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com slash art to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash art. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I don't know if it's the accents or the tea or the driving on the wrong side of the road, but no matter what it is, I love British TV. And I'm getting my fill and then some thanks to Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals you won't find anywhere else. Acorn has hundreds of exclusive shows from around the world, including award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, history, and so much more. The series that you find on Acorn TV are cleverly written, visually striking, and feature renowned actors and hosts like David Tennant and Mary Berry. And who doesn't love Mary Berry? I'm especially excited to begin binging series two of Queens of Mystery, the Acorn TV original that follows the adventures of three crime-riding sisters and their 28-year-old detective niece. Using their knowledge of crime, both real-world and fictional, together they solve murders in a picturesque English region of Wild Marsh. 
The Los Angeles Times calls it a surefire crowd pleaser, and for someone who loves a good cozy mystery like myself, it will be a must watch. With Acorn TV, you can get thousands of hours of new, enthralling content for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. I stream it on my Roku or directly on my phone or tablet with the Acorn TV app, so watching is so easy and so fun. With Acorn TV, I always get my British fix, and you can too. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using my promo code Art Curious, but you have to enter the promo code all in lowercase letters. That's A C O R N dot TV, promo code Art Curious, lowercase, to get your first 30 days for free. Acorn TV, code Art Curious. Welcome back to Art Curious. That Leonardo da Vinci was asked by the Sforzas to fulfill a commission for a painting of the Last Supper in a monastery's refectory isn't a surprise. And I call this a traditional ask because it truly was. It was very common, especially in the Renaissance, to paint scenes of the Last Supper, the final meal had by Jesus before his arrest and his crucifixion the following day. This was something that was in refectories of monasteries and convents throughout Italy. And if you are one of the lucky listeners who has taken my Breaking Barriers course on avid.fm, you'll know that this was a tradition that was especially beloved in Florence. And an artist like Leonardo, who was born right outside of the city's boundaries, would have been hugely familiar with this convention. Much of the interest in having a picture of the Last Supper came from just having something to do while a monk or a nun was having a meal. Most monastic orders, for example, required silence during meals, a requirement that was only occasionally broken if someone was leading the group in prayer or reading some scripture. Having something to look at, something then to contemplate or to dig deep with or even just enjoy, would have helped both pass this quiet time and would have provided these holy men and women with an opportunity to consider Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. Plus, Having a scene of a feast just makes logical sense within the refectory, like how the walls of a McDonald's might be plastered with posters for a Big Mac or a Happy Meal. You're taking in an image of food or of people dining while you yourself are dining. And as the most important feast in the Christian Bible, choosing the Last Supper as your subject just fits. Accounts of the Last Supper can be found in each of the four Gospels of the New Testament, though details aren't the same and are often in conflict with one another. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, all deem that the Last Supper was a Passover meal eaten by Jews on the last night of Passover and typically features lamb and unleavened bread. The evangelist John's account, however, claims that this all took place before Passover. During the meal, Matthew, Luke, and Mark each make mention of what we would eventually call the institution of the Eucharist. So that moment where Jesus breaks bread and shares it and the wine with his disciples and encourages them to continue doing so as a remembrance of him after his death. This is a pivotal moment in the New Testament as well as in Christianity and church history. John, ever the dissenter, makes no mention of this. But Leonardo da Vinci, he doesn't particularly care what the gospel says and where. What he does is what is most dramatically effective. So he mixes and matches the narrative, as artists have done many times before him, combining the institution of the Eucharist with that big reveal of an upcoming betrayal 
to make the moment bigger and bolder. And weightier, too, for those inclined to use it as a prayerful inspiration. But it wasn't only the subject matter that would prove to be dramatic in the creation of this iconic work of art. You see, Leonardo took the commission, but as we know, Leonardo was a big experimenter, and he wanted to use this opportunity to try something new. In this case, he decided not to paint a traditional fresco, and instead opted to use his oil paints on a dry wall. To be totally fair, this wasn't Leonardo's original idea. This technique had been mentioned in one of the great art treatises of the 15th century, Leon Battista Alberti's On the Art of Building, wherein Alberti writes, quote, It has recently been discovered that linseed oil will protect whatever color you wish to apply from any harmful climate or atmosphere, provided the wall on which it is applied is dry and is in no way moist, unquote. An artist had indeed been following this guidance and had produced many beautiful works, such as Domenico Veneziano in his oil paintings for the Portinari Chapel in Florence, which Leonardo had undoubtedly seen. And indeed, Veneziano had apparently done such a great job that his patron, who was inspired by the artist's gorgeous colors, gave him a monetary bonus after the work's completion. So Leo was in really good company to begin with. But he also wanted to improve upon Veneziano's methods, too. So he began by mixing a combination of oil paints and tempera paints to produce a mixture that he believed would make even more remarkable results. And off he went to Santa Maria delle Grazie to complete his very non-traditional fresco. As we learned in episode number 85 this season about Michelangelo's frescoes for the Sistine ceiling, Making a true fresco, or buon fresco, is not the easiest thing in the world. Nor is it a leisurely experience. Fresco artists must work quickly and with a very particular set of tools and pigments to be able to properly integrate their designs into the plaster and to essentially become part of the wall itself. But we know that Leonardo was no blind follower. He was Leonardo, and he wanted to do things his own way. So here, he worked leisurely and deliberately, sometimes stopping for hours to gaze at his work, only making perhaps one delicate change before ending his work for the day, and apparently to the great chagrin of the abbot of the monastery. It was a worthy endeavor, but we know now that Leonardo's take on the medium would not stand up to the test of time, and the fresco today is quite literally a pale impression of itself. It is still a sight to behold in person, to be sure, but like the Mona Lisa, it's not the easiest sight to behold. Luckily for us, though, copies of Leonardo's original design were created after its completion during the Renaissance, which is a lucky break that allows us to understand the details of the painting far more clearly than we would otherwise. So who and what do we actually see in Leonardo's Last Supper? In the center, we see Jesus, of course, framed so nicely in an eye-catching trio of windows. To each side of Jesus are his disciples, who are each reacting dramatically, horrified, to Christ's announcement of his impending betrayal. What's really cool is that all of the figures here are unique, each with differing expressions and hand gestures, and supposedly based on real-life individuals whom Leonardo came across during his walks in Milan, 
where he would sketch the people around him. On the left side, we see Peter, identifiable by the knife he holds, which he will later use to attack the men who will arrest Jesus. And he leans in to speak to long-haired John, seemingly to confirm that he has just heard Jesus' declaration correctly. In front of them, Judas leans back in shock, holding that traditional purse of silver that he'll be granted for his place in the betrayal of Christ. To be sure, these four men are the primary figures in this image, and then they are all surrounded with the spoils of their feast. Cups and platters, fish, eels, oranges, other fruits, and of course, the bread and the wine. Leonardo then ingeniously ups the ante by organizing the space to match the interior of the refectory so that his fresco appears to be a continuation of the actual dining room that the monks would be sitting in, which is a lovely and psychologically compelling choice that would hit home emotionally for those setting eyes on it during their own mealtimes. So that's what the Last Supper shows to us. But is there more than meets the eye here? That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're a creative person, drawn to story and eager to make something of your own. So here's something interesting that might be right up your alley. A program designed for both aspiring and established filmmakers. NYU Tisch is offering a slate of online courses this spring on screenwriting, documentary filmmaking, and a film workshop, all using a remote learning platform with some very powerful and unique features. This isn't the kind of online classes you might be picturing. Basic video and no instructor feedback or class participation. These courses from NYU Tisch Pro go way beyond that, with an intuitive interactive interface and polished clear visuals. This experience is designed to be digital from the ground up rather than adapted from a traditional course, so it looks and feels great at every turn. Whether you're collaborating with other students as part of a virtual film crew or setting up a one-on-one -on -one interaction with your instructor, you can do it all directly and seamlessly with Tish's platform. I really like this one feature that allows you or your crewmates to leave comments at a specific point on a video timeline so that you can zoom in to exactly what they're talking about. Plus, the courses are designed to offer total scheduling flexibility, so students can delve into the material at their own pace, reviewing video lectures delivered by Tisch faculty and produced by real-life filmmakers. Courses this spring include Documentary Workshop, featuring participation from the New York Times OpDocs. There's also Writing for the Screen and their new Film Workshop, which will introduce you to the theory and technique of writing, shooting, and editing short digital films. No experience or background in film is needed for any of these courses. With NYU's Tisch Pro Online, you can learn how to bring your story to life, and you can do it all online. The deadline for this next term is February 28th, and the next term begins on March 7th. Learn more at tishpro.smashcut.com slash artcurious. That's T-I-S-C-H-P-R-O dot smashcut.com slash artcurious. Bombus's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombus, you're also giving to someone in need. Bombus designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. 
Everything they make is so soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They are made from super soft materials like merino wool and pima cotton and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy winter layers. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do, and they come in tons of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity that gets you moving. I personally love their ankle-length running socks, and their merino wool socks are just delightful, I am telling you. And Bombas isn't just socks. It's also luxuriously smooth, tag-free t-shirts and underwear with a barely-there feel that might even make you forget that they're even there. In a good way, of course. Combined, all of these, socks, underwear, and t-shirts, they are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters. And that's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. Go to bombas.com slash artcurious and get 20% off any purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash artcurious for 20% off. Bombas.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Before we answer the question about the existence of any real Da Vinci Codes, it's helpful to go back and remind ourselves of Dan Brown's fictional take on the work of art. Brown's big reveal in the Da Vinci Code is that the figure traditionally identified as John the Evangelist, someone often called the Beloved Disciple, isn't actually John, but instead is Mary Magdalene, who, remember, has been determined to have been Jesus' wife. Much of this identification is based on our contemporary interpretation of the figure of John, whose long hair frames a gentle and kind of androgynous face and even shows, as Brown writes, quote, the hint of a bosom, unquote. And look, I get it. John is by far the prettiest of the men in Leonardo's image. And it would indeed be super sexy and gratifying to my feminist heart to believe that Jesus's all-boys club here at the Last Supper would have been attended by a truly awesome lady. I won't get into much about Mary Magdalene here today, but do go back and listen to my mini-episode of A Little Curious on Donatello's groundbreaking take on Mary Magdalene. Going back to androgyny. Androgyny was something that Leonardo played with to stunning effect, by the way. Just see his painting of John the Baptist as major proof of that. But we've got to remember that just as Leonardo had inherited ideas about his oil paint on the wall technique from other artists before him, he also inherited their iconography, or the traditional symbols and images that were long used in art history that were made in order for us, the viewers, to be able to interpret and understand works of art. In the European tradition, John has long been routinely shown as a young, beardless man. And that lack of beard, by the way, would then fully emphasize his youth. And was someone who was also shown with a slightly feminine appearance, or what might be read as feminine to us today. In the Middle Ages in Europe, the understanding and characterization of John and Jesus's relationship was one of a deep spiritual affection, even love which some religious scholars would compare to a kind of heavenly or mystical marriage, a devotion to Christian belief that artists literally portrayed through John's positioning in their works of art. He is almost always shown sitting beside Jesus, even often leaning or sleeping on Jesus's chest. Leonardo's take on this concept thus fits fully in line with this tradition. And the concept of the Last Supper in visual art 
as we've already established, was highly codified, with a set cast of characters so that viewers, many of whom were illiterate in Italy during the late Middle Ages, when these images were just beginning to be systematized, could understand them clearly. True, there are paintings that do show Jesus alongside Mary Magdalene, but up to this point in art history, the Last Supper was standardized with 13 men. The 12 disciples, all known by name, and Jesus, of course. For Leonardo to just up and paint a scene of Jesus with 11 of his male disciples and opting to leave John out, one of Christ's most important followers, and then substituting him with Mary Magdalene? Well, that would not only have been totally unprecedented, but it would have also been just straight up odd. He may have been a prankster and rule breaker, as we learned from the first episode of this season, but that doesn't mean that he broke all the rules. And don't even get me started on the whole supposed M or V shapes that Dan Brown claims that the bodies of John and Jesus make. What's really important to know is that Leonardo specifically isolates Jesus so that our eyes are drawn to him. Jesus is separated with John, the non-Mary, leaning away from him to make sure visually that it is indeed Jesus who is our full center of attention. So there isn't a Da Vinci Code in the way that Dan Brown would like us to believe, or in fact, would hope that we would believe. This book actually plays with ideas of facts and fictions, not the least of which is including real historical people, known locations, and yes, works of art to ground its story. But it even claims, in spaces, to be telling an at least somewhat truthful narrative. It's often forgotten that Brown's book is set up by the author with a statement that reads, and this is a bit long-winded, so bear with me, quote, Fact. The Priory of Scion, a European secret society founded in 1099, is a real organization. In 1975, Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale discovered parchments known as Les Dossiers Secrets, identifying numerous members of the Priory of Sion, including Sir Isaac Newton, Sandro Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. The Vatican prelature known as Opus Dei is a deeply devout Catholic sect that had been the topic of a recent controversy due to reports of brainwashing, coercion, and a dangerous practice known as corporal mortification. Opus Dei has just completed construction of a $47 million national headquarters at 243 Lexington Avenue in New York City. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Unquote. So that's how the Da Vinci Code begins. But here's the kicker. None of these facts, and facts in air quotes, about the Priory of Sion are actually accepted as such by scholars. And if Brown had done maybe a little bit more research, he would have discovered that the Priory was, in fact, a hoax, perpetuated by a Frenchman named Pierre Plantard. Okay, quick sidebar. After collaborating with the Nazis during the French occupation, Plantard, perhaps seeking a new but equally dubious career, founded the so-called Priory of Sion as a way to seek fame for himself as part of a long line of protectors of the Holy Grail with incredible connections to the French throne, which then later spun out of control into this idea of a bloodline connection to Jesus himself. 
Plantar and his associate then forged Les Dossiers Secrets, which made its way into the Bibliothèque Nationale and then into texts that trumpeted them as fact. So even though it was exhaustively debunked as one of the greatest literary hoaxes of the 20th century, there are still some who believe that the Priory exists. All of this does lead me to note that just because we're not living in Dan Brown's mysterious and certainly colorful world doesn't mean that there are no codes going on in Leonardo's iconic Last Supper. Most of them aren't codes the way we might envision them to be, but instead are symbols, visual elements meant to remind the viewer of important connections to the narrative and to scriptural teachings. Jesus' left hand reaching for the bread while his right hand hovers over the wine goblet is a visualization of the Eucharist, the literal interpretation of Jesus as the so-called bread of life. Everything from the apples or pomegranates in front of the apostles to those platters of fish and eels, everything would have meant something within these contexts. Even the upturned salt shaker in front of Judas was yet another visual reminder of the evil that lay ahead at his traitorous hands, as well as a symbol of his own bad luck. But there are still some folks out there who think that there is more to the Last Supper than we might typically believe. In a small sidebar in my recent book, I mentioned that in 2007, an Italian musician and computer scientist named Giovanni Maria Palla released a 40-second composition gleaned from the placement of, and again, wait for it, the bread and human hands in Leonardo's crumbling fresco. When played, Paula says, quote, It sounds like a requiem. It sounds like a soundtrack that would emphasize the passion of Jesus. Unquote. By now, you probably know that I'm a little bit skeptical, but at the same time, would it truly surprise us if there really was some kind of Da Vinci Code after all? Because as we are acutely aware, Leonardo was famously one of the most talented and curious humans to ever live, someone who not only invented musical instruments and studied the physics of sound transmission, but who also tinkered with scoring and composition himself some scribblings of which still survive today in his various codices, or notebooks. If anyone could create an indelible, if fragile work of art and secretly hide a musical score or another code in it, I would definitely believe that it was none other than Leonardo who could do that. Thank you for listening to this, the final episode of Art Curious Season 10. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Jessica Walschlager once again for her amazing research and writing help with this episode. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast production services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new podcast, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Season two is coming soon. Learn more at subgenrepodcast.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. 
Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchor Light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-deductible to Art Curious to show your support. To find the donation links and for more details about our show in this episode, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on all the socials at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us soon for Art Curious Season 11 and more as we continue to explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.